and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 32, a very special episode. See, normally I would jump into hawking my wares and plugging Counterpunch and begging and imploring people to uh, subscribe to the magazine, but I'm going to skip all of that for now because I have an amazing guest on the line with me, somebody who I am proud to say that I know. I am honored to call him a comrade and a fellow traveler, George Galloway, who really needs no introduction. George, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, So lots to talk about with you. You really are in many ways one of the leading voices of what I would consider to be the true anti-imperialist left. So much happening right now, particularly in Europe and in the Middle East. So let's jump right into it. Um, You've been pretty vocal on the uh, continuing and ongoing uh, escalation in the Middle East from the so-called Arab Spring all the way to this Syrian civil war that we've seen now. Uh, Considering everything that's happening, considering the Russian engagement in the last few months. Um, What is your read on the current situation in Syria? And more broadly speaking, what does this uh, tell us about the direction of the region? Well, it's a necessary but not sufficient imperative to crush the ISIS-Al-Qaeda madness in both Syria and Iraq. It's necessary because if we don't, it will consume the peoples of those two ancient historic civilizations, but also spread uh, like a cancer across the Arab world and indeed much wider than that, across the Muslim world as a whole. It is uh, a savage and bestial phenomenon. It cuts the throats and heads of anyone who disagrees with them, whether religious minorities from other faiths, or people from their own professed faith who don't agree with their maniacal interpretation uh, of Islam, this sectarian uh, and uh, foul racist hatred. And if we don't defeat them, then the uh, game is up, frankly, for the Middle East. After a hundred years exactly, this month, I think, of the Sykes-Picot partitioning, of the Arab world into artificial states. Uh, The uh, campaign that people like me led for decades against Sykes-Picot for its artificial divisions in the Arab world will be left looking back with nostalgia for the days when there were only 23 Arab states instead of what will take its place, hundreds, maybe thousands, of sectarian emirates, all armed, of course, by the usual armorers and provoked into, if they need much provoking, endless wars against each other. There could be hundreds, there could be thousands of such tiny sectarian emirates across the Middle East. So it's necessary to defeat them. The Syrian Arab army with its allies, particularly Russia, which has changed the course of the war, uh, but also others, Iran, the Lebanese resistance movement, Hezbollah, other fighters uh, that are on the battlefield are now turning the tide and will, I think, before very much longer be victorious. But it is not sufficient to defeat ISIS and Al-Qaeda on the battlefield. 
We must deal with the swamp of hatred and alienation from which this mutation has emerged. And that swamp is endlessly watered by the sense of grievance, justified sense of grievance that all Muslims feel about the double standards, the injustice uh, perpetrated by other powers, mainly Western powers, mainly your country and mine. The double standard over Palestine, the double standard over democracy, where we uh, go to war against one family rule and dictatorship in Syria, whilst our best friend uh, is uh, Saudi Arabia, the clue being in the name, uh, a country called after the one family which has ruled it from its uh, inception. Uh, we must deal with, the Muslims must deal with, a propensity to sectarian fanaticism amongst a section of the Muslims. Not a big section, a minority, but nonetheless sizable enough to cause the kind of mayhem that we've seen not just in Syria and Iraq, but also in Libya. And uh, it's present in Tunisia and other Arab countries. George, and, if I could, uh, this, I'm sorry, if I could just jump in, I want to get your take on something here that's very important that listeners, I think, need to always be clued in on. And that's the fact that these wars, these conflicts, particularly, as you just mentioned, Libya and Syria, they don't exist in a vacuum. In fact, we have to pay attention to the way in which those very same Western powers, the imperial system, is using this swamp that you're referring to, these uh, inhuman and and barbaric groups such as the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and others, using them as essentially proxies of their own agenda, proxies of the uh, agenda that they have for the region, the destruction of Libya, the destruction of Syria. These things wouldn't be possible without utilizing terrorism as a weapon of war. Speak to that in the context of what you're mentioning. Well, even uh, President Obama has publicly stated that the ISIS-Al-Qaeda phenomenon now wreaking havoc in several Arab countries, but mainly Iraq and Syria, uh, grew directly out of the Bush-Blair invasion and occupation of Iraq. But the very same President Obama is doing the same thing in Syria yes. as he previously did in Libya. Uh, the, we, some of your listeners will be old enough to remember when we played this game with the Frankenstein monsters in Afghanistan in the 1980s where we effectively played Dr. Frankenstein in creating the monster which has gone on mutating and morphing and is now ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And we did that on the basis that my enemy's enemy is my friend. The uh, fanatics who were fighting in Afghanistan against the Afghan regime of the time, by the way, the only Afghan regime in history, ever to open girls' schools and girls' universities and take the land off the landowners and distribute it to the peasants and many other things that if we had more time, I'd go into. Uh, the Western policy, principally U.S. and U.K., in the 1980s, led to this monster now rampaging across the world. And worse than that, we are uh, continuing to this hour to give every support that we can, financial uh, armaments, 
war material, propaganda and diplomatic support to the very people we were told after 9-11 were an existential threat to humanity. Most American listeners will be unaware that your government is paying taxpayers' dollars to al-Qaeda this hour in yep. Syria. Yep, that's exactly right. And again, you know, this is not some sort of, you know, secret conspiracy that people need to, you know, envision uh, a cabal in a in a darkened room somewhere. This is, in fact, an open conspiracy, something yes. that we have seen. We have documented evidence, including just even recently the Defense Intelligence Agency memo of 2012, which said very clearly U.S. intelligence knew what the Islamic State was. They knew that the Salafist uh, extremist organization was emerging and that they wanted to use it as a means of leveraging for regime change in Syria. Again, playing the same pattern that you mentioned in Afghanistan that we saw in Libya as well with the so-called Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. They are repeating this same pattern over and over again. And until we're able to unite and stand up against those such tactics, against this imperialism, it will continue. Indeed. And the uh, they don't even have the excuse that it was a mistake. Uh, George Bush was an imbecile. Maybe he could make a mistake. But the uh, foreign policy institutions of the United States are well aware that they have done this over and over and over again. So it cannot be described as a mistake. It therefore must be a deliberate policy. And you say it's open, and indeed it is open to the inquiring, but you have to be inquiring in order to know this because the United States so-called mainstream media just as the British uh, have continually either ignored or obscured this relationship between Western countries and fanatic extremism uh, which they have used to try and bring about regime change in Syria and indeed they succeeded in doing so in Libya now um, they are failing in Syria, where they succeeded in Libya, mainly because Russia has intervened in the war. That's why there's this wrath, this rage against Russia, against its president, because he has intervened in the war and made it impossible for them to be successful and victorious. Yes, exactly right. And, and and one thing that I think is important to note here, especially for those of us who are vocal on the left, who oftentimes get accused of, you know, caught, you know, quote unquote, coddling dictators or whatever, as I'm, I know you've had that slur many times yes, before. From the very people who are not, they're not coddling dictators, they're pouring money and guns down their throat. Well, and not only that, but those who pose as leftists, those who pose as being, uh, you know, against all of these things, while at the same time finding themselves conspicuously on the side of the empire more often than not. I had people accusing me of, uh, you know, quote unquote, coddling dictators when I uh, opposed the war in Libya, when I opposed the war in Iraq, when I opposed the war in Syria. Somehow so many people on the left, quote unquote, oftentimes find themselves right in bed with NATO and the empire. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. It is. It's a melancholy truth, uh, but it's been the truth uh, on the left since the First World War in 1914. Uh, the Socialist International at that time declared against a European war, but when one began, they threw their lot in 
with their own regimes, with uh, some honorable exceptions. Uh, the Bolshevik tradition opposed the war, but everyone else on the left uh, supported it. And uh, we, we see the same pattern uh, recurring over and over again. Um, I always say, never confuse me with a liberal. And one <laughs> of the reasons why I say that is because of the propensity of liberals to support the most ghastly atrocities all done in the name of liberalism. Yeah, and and in particular in today's lexicon, it's not you know it's it, they don't say liberalism. They like to use the pretext of humanitarianism. Wasn't yes. it so humanitarian when we went and destroyed Libya the, with the highest standard of living, human development index, sharing of the natural resources, development in Africa? It was so humanitarian of us to destroy secular Syria and all of these other instances. This form of humanitarianism, this cover of humanitarianism, is in fact perhaps one of the most insidious tools that the empire uses to justify aggression. Well, in the 19th century, uh, the British Empire draped itself in the clothes of Christianity and a civilizing mission, infantilizing the victims of their, uh, their uh, murdering and theft, uh, and saying that, well, we're only there to hold their hands until they've grown up and they can govern themselves. Nowadays, uh, that's been replaced by the cloak of humanitarianism and the cloak of uh, human rights. Although they care nothing of the human rights of the people in Saudi Arabia, nothing of the human rights of the people in Yemen, in Gaza, in Lebanon, in Syria and Iraq, they're hypocrites of the highest order. That's exactly right. Well, in the time we have remaining, I want to touch on two other issues and one that is very close to my heart and one that I am very publicly vocal on, and that is the refugee issue. You know, we hear a lot of talk about the refugee issue. All of the chatter I find to be mostly meaningless and vacuous. And there's two things I want to point out. One is something you and I discussed on your program just a few weeks ago, and that is the role of certain powers, in particular Turkey, in manipulating very cynically the flow of refugees for its own political purposes. So can you speak to that? Because I want, I want to touch on that before we talk about the European perspective on refugees, which is also so deeply problematic and, in fact, neo-colonial. So let's start with Turkey and what Turkey has done. What's your take? Well, uh, the liberals... Uh, agonize over whether we should take 1,500 or 2,200 or <laughs> maybe 3,100 uh, refugees. I don't want any refugees. I want all the refugees to be able to go back to their own countries who need them more than we do. The decapitation of Syrian society that's currently underway with the most educated, best professionals fleeing the country through Turkey, which I have no doubt at all is deliberately pushing these people farther on into Europe for their own political purposes. And of course, once here, they are subjected to the icy blasts of European hospitality from the states, which are largely involved or at least supporting the very wars from which these refugees are fleeing. Uh, I think that Turkey's uh, culpability and deep, deep involvement in the crises in the Middle East scarcely needs more 
uh, elaboration on a show like yours. But everyone listening should know that our ally, our NATO partner, Turkey, has been more responsible than any other country, and there's hot competition for that title, for the carnage in Syria and the subsequent refugee flow that has occurred than any other country in the world. I, I couldn't agree more. The other the other side of that, though, and this is one that often gets problematic for those of us who have been standing against a lot of these wars and making alliances with various uh, political forces, and that is what I consider to be the very, very sinister and very dangerous rise of fascist uh, ideology and fascist attitudes in Europe, on the continent, and even in, uh, in the UK as well, as we've seen clashes on the streets with neo-Nazis who are demonizing and scapegoating refugees and acting as if all of these refugees are quote-unquote rape-fugees, you know, come to defile our our precious white women of Europe or something like this. This is a very neo-colonial or just straight-up colonial attitude that is re-emerging and it is being fed by the media. It is being fed into a mass hysteria that I think is incredibly dangerous, particularly since we have stood in defense of the victims of empire, which is what these refugees are. So speak to this rising fascism in Europe and what we need to do to counter that. Well, of course, it was grimly obvious and inevitable uh, that in a European uh, continent, itself sunk in recession or even slump, uh, suffering the cold, cold winter of austerity, uh, would react in the way that it has at the prospect of one million last year and another million this year uh, of uh, new mouths to feed or new competitors in the labor market. This is exactly the kind of ground on which the extreme right and even fascists uh, are designed to feed. It's their meteor, it's their swamp, if you like to continue the analogy I made earlier. And the uh, liberals, meanwhile, as I say, agonize about uh, how many more dozens of refugees should, in fact, we be taking. And our states and the media, which is their echo chamber, continue to ramp up the very wars from which the people are fleeing. And they're never done telling us how Christian they are. Uh, they, they bomb countries and then try to slam the door on those who are fleeing their bombing. And they insist that the, uh, that the people who have arrived in their countries as a direct consequence of their aggression and their funding and arming of aggression uh, should be subject to every indignity every uh, pressure that can be brought to bear on them. And so the human uh, consequences of all of this are to be seen in the camps in Calais or in the miserable trail of humanity snaking across Europe, trying to find a warm bed to sleep in, trying to find a warm welcome as human beings and not finding it.
Exactly. And the point that I keep making when I confront people who are pushing this very extreme reactionary, what I would call fascist ideology, is the simple fact that they're that they have now inverted the actual power relationship such that the victims of imperialism, the victims of Europe and the United States' wars and the wars of the empire are now made into the aggressors as if they are the invaders of Europe, they are the destabilizers, they are the evil uh, force that needs to be dealt with. This is the most insidious form of colonial mentality that also, I think, has to be addressed and has to be confronted. Indeed. Uh, All I say is that it was grimly inevitable that this would happen uh, in the mess that is the European uh, neocon, neoliberal uh, um, mentality that is uh, ruling us that the people in Greece had to suffer, that the people in Portugal and Spain and other European countries have had to suffer. The grim orthodoxy of uh, neoliberal economics, uh, uh, Reagan, Thatcher, economics. Uh, The masses in these European countries are suffering uh, themselves great austerity and widespread poverty. And then into the mix comes millions of refugees and the false consciousness that exists is such that many people, not all, many people blame the victims rather than the perpetrators. Exactly right. Now, on the final point, since we're just about out of time, I want to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about London, about your campaign, about what is the the, the latest there, but especially for my listeners in the United States, which is probably the the vast majority. um, Tell us what drove you to run for mayor of London? What are the, uh, well, material conditions and perhaps also ideological reasons why you had to make this push, particularly when uh, it seems to me, the establishment of the Labour Party in, 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 in the UK is so vastly, uh, at least how it seems, arrayed against you. So what are the conditions in London? Why are you running? And why do you want people to be supporting you? Well, I've just been speaking tonight to yet another packed public meeting, this time in the East End of London, and followed by thousands of people online uh, from, uh, from uh, nothing more sophisticated than a mobile telephone. Uh, I'm packing them in, in public meetings almost every night. I'm currently in third place behind Labour and the Conservatives, leaving all the other parties as also rans. Uh, but I'm closing, and uh, there's still three months to go before the elections. I don't have money. I don't have a machine. But I've got a name. I've got recognition. I've got a reputation as someone who was right about all the big issues. And I'm fighting for a London for all, not just those dripping in gold. And that's a message which is uh, resonating right across the city amongst all kinds of people. I'm very strong in minority communities, and 53% of London uh, is made up of minority communities. I'm speaking to the blue-collar Labour uh, voters uh, to try to win them to a real Labour movement position. Uh, Both of my opponents, one of them is a billionaire, I mean billionaire, the richest man ever to run for office 
in England, uh, Zach Goldsmith. Uh, he's the Conservative candidate, but you could confuse him with the Labour candidate, yes. who is uh, touting exactly the same kind of policies in uh, slavish uh, position to exactly the same kind of interests. Both yeah. of them are with the banks, both of them are with the 1%, both of them are with Israel, both of them are with the wars. I could go on. And, uh, and it so, seems to me, George, that they're both against Corbyn. That's what I find so sickening about all of this, is that even the Labour candidate is really uh, uh, sniping and, and, and just, I think, in a very sort of treacherous kind of way, undermining the very leadership of the party that he claims to be representing. And so, in a sense, you, as an outsider of the Labour Party, quote-unquote, are actually upholding the left flank and, uh, and really are aligned with the leader of Labour while their candidate sits there really buddy-buddy uh, uh, with the Tories? Yes, it's a complicated uh, situation for Mr. Corbyn. The right wing of the Labour Party intends to uh, overthrow him in May, in just uh, 12 weeks or so, maybe less. Uh, and if uh, the Labour candidate wins the London mayoralty, he'll be the one who wields the knife. I'm the one standing for Jeremy Corbyn's policies. Uh, the Labour candidate supports Corbyn as the rope supports the hanging man. And so it's an intriguing and complicated political situation. But you can say this, those that support Jeremy Corbyn's politics will definitely be voting for me. And if I can come ahead of the Labour candidate, I'll win the race and be the mayor of London because nobody who votes Labour is going to vote Conservative with their second preference vote. Many of them will vote for me, and uh, many of the supporters of the other parties will do so also. So my race is to come ahead of the Labour candidate uh, in terms of first preference votes, and on second preference votes, if I did that, I would win. You know, I, for those of us who are outsiders to UK politics who don't follow it as closely, it seems almost uh, shocking and somehow inexplicable. Where is the rest of the of the the Corbyn base of the Labour Party that put Corbyn into power? Where are they on backing your candidacy? Because although you're not technically part of Labour, you are the representative of their politics. So where do they stand? Well, they can't say anything publicly, or they would be expelled, like I was. Uh, in 2003, uh, but I can assure you that privately they're fully behind me and their votes will be fully behind me. Uh, they uh, had no choice in this matter. Corbyn's election took place on the same weekend as the election of the uh, Labour candidate for London mayor. Uh, the Labour candidate for London mayor had no idea that Jeremy Corbyn was going to win the Labour leadership and vice versa. Uh, so that's why I say it's exceedingly complicated. But uh, in another sense, it's very clear. I stand for all the things that Jeremy Corbyn stands for. We've been comrades for almost 40 years. Uh, and the Labour candidate for mayor stands against everything that Jeremy Corbyn believes in. And as you say, is knifing him publicly in the newspapers, on radio, on television, every single day. He repeats the mantra... I will stand up to Jeremy Corbyn. Well, if I'm elected, I'll stand with Jeremy Corbyn. 
Absolutely. Well, I've already kept you over time, so we're going to have to leave it there. But before you go, um, is there a website? Where can people follow what's happening with your campaign? What's happening with your work, broadly speaking? Where should people go? Well, for this purpose, if you're interested in the mayoral, Galloway2016.London. Galloway2016.London. I would urge people to follow along, show your support, even those of us in the U.S. It's always good for us to voice what voice our support for George, for his candidacy, and for the positions and the politics that he stands for. And before I let you go, George, I just got to say, uh, I don't normally like to do this, but I have to tell you my admiration for you going back a number of years when I was, when my politics were still being shaped here in the United States, and I watched you come to Washington before Congress and make your, your you know your legendary presentation there it was a seminal moment in my in my politics and it drove me to the positions the ideology and the vocal attitude that I have taken so I want to thank you for that and on behalf of all the other people for whom that was also a seminal moment in opposing war and in standing for uh, truth and justice thanks George well thank you Eric it's an honor to hear you say that and the best of luck to Counterpunch Radio Thank you so much. Listeners, stick with us. We'll be with you on the other side of the break. I'm going to tell all you fascists you may be surprised. People all over this world are getting organized to bow to lose. You fascists about to lose. Hatred cannot stop us This one thing I know The poll tax and Jim Crow and greed Have got to go You're bound to lose Are you fascists about to lose? Are you fascists about to lose? You fascists about to lose You fascists about to lose You're about to lose You fascists about to lose People are baby color marching side by side Marching across the fields with a million fascists That you're about to lose Are you fascists about to lose? Are you fascists about to lose? You fascists about to lose You fascists about to lose You're about to lose You fascists about Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and um, we are lucky enough to have another guest with us today. Um, sometimes I get people on this show, and I've never spoken to them before, and it's exciting because I know where they're coming from, and I can speak to them and sort of, you know, really get to get to know them. And then other times, like right now, for example, I get to have somebody who is actually a friend on the show and someone who I've spoken with many, many times and who I know very well. And I'm very, very happy, very pleased to introduce Daniel Patrick Welch to Counterpunch Radio. Uh, Daniel is a political analyst. He is a friend of mine. He is also the founder of the Greenhouse School, a very interesting, very successful independent school in Massachusetts. I'm very pleased to have him on. Love the guy. Dan, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me. 
So, lots to discuss. Um, I had George Galloway on here before the break, and he and I were discussing a number of issues, including the uh, increasing importance of the discourse around refugees and the refugee uh, so-called crisis in Europe. And so, I really do want to get your take on this because, well, for instance, uh, there's a number of, I think, intersecting, interlocking issues that have to be explored here, including the political context, including the racial uh, and, uh, you know, fascistic context here. So let's begin here. Refugee crisis. What is your uh, impression of the way that this is being discussed in the media and in the alternative media? Well, in the media, the the, the corporate uh, media, the Western, um, you know, imperialist media, there's nothing new. This has always been the way that the kind of propaganda matrix responds in the case of um, immigration, migration, uh, economic dislocation, economic expropriation, uh, uh, war, refugee status. However, you you put the current spin of the current label on the age-old phenomenon of human migration the current propaganda matrix will try to use it to its advantage. And, of course, in this context, what that usually means is sensationalizing and demonizing um, the uh, incoming wave of immigration, which, of course, as we know, both coming from different waves of migration, ours, yours from Eastern Europe, mine from Ireland to the United States, it's just the, the most recent wave. So the question is, this has been around with us forever, as, uh, certainly um, as long as human movement has been around, but specifically in the context of uh, mercantile capitalism, people moving uh, from state to state, and the incomers are always treated as invaders, and they are demonized in order to make, uh, to exploit the kind of dislocation that uh, plundered people will feel um, inside the the nation that is uh, that people are coming into, so that the elites can use it to their advantage. Yeah, and Dan, I just want to say something though, because yeah. what you're getting at here, and this is a point that I keep making repeatedly, and this is what one of the concepts that I find most disturbing about the way that this is being handled is that the victims of imperialism, those people in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, in all of these different places, those people coming from uh, these war zones, from these failed states, from these victims of the empire, coming to Europe are then inverted and they become the aggressors while the Europeans become the victims. And this inverted power relationship, that is, I think, the crux of what we're dealing with here. Absolutely. And what the, the, the thing is that white people, just like when Irish immigrants came from um, Ireland and then came to the United States, they got off the boat and they said, holy crap, we're not Irish anymore. We get to be white. And that means something in this culture. We get to kick the dog. And so if they can be taught that they are victims then they can be more loyal servants to the uh, the imperialists because they will join um, the the wars and the further plundering to take the social wage out of the uh, the expropriation of wealth from 
um, Asia and Africa and the New Americas and so on. And you're exactly right. It turns history and it turns social philosophy completely on its head to say that these people are coming in and victimizing um, the people who live here already just because they happen to have come a little earlier when in reality they have been living off the plunder of those prior actions. And That's so it, it's really an ugly kind of thing that they're doing. And, and you mentioned race and this the thing is it has never been about anything else. If you dig into the history of it, obviously there is always a racial angle to it. And there's always a counter argument, always, every single time. If you go back to, you know, uh, Father Coughlin or Hitler or any of the demonization of the other, there's always some philosophy that is kind of fascistic in nature that is uh, essentializing the other and making it subhuman and less than us so that we will have the, the – uh, People here will have something to hold over the other people. And when people say, oh, why are you making it about race? They always say that. That's always a counter argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the fact is because it always has been. Always. It's always, always, always about brown people coming into Europe. I remember sharing with you this thing. There was this um, – you had seen it. It was a – uh, something about migrant crime, which yep. is another thing I'd like to talk about I in a minute. Just, I was going to bring it up. Yeah, go ahead. That's another sham. But they took a a uh, a picture as an illustration for this. The article was bogus on its face, but they took it one step further and put in a a picture of this brown man kind of fondling a white woman. Do you remember this picture? Oh yeah. That we're talking about. Okay, so this is first of all, it's a trope. And I think very, very tellingly, it's not even a real photo. It was a design. It was, in fact, uh, quite, quite um, appropriately, a fabrication, a, 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 an image that is faked to make it look like this is what it has always been. Big, scary brown men coming to take our women and take our crap. That is what the the uh, essential fear of immigration, as it has been posited by the elites to make uh, the natives restless, has always come to. And even if you go back to the that article and other articles like that, um, migrant crime. Come on. <laughs> some people rape. Some people steal. Some people are fraudulent. Some people murder in every subsection of every society everywhere in the history of everything forever. The, the question is, why are you asking me these questions? Why are you telling me this statistic and this story in this context now? If you can't come up with a reason, it is almost, um, it's almost undeniable that you are feeding into this current stream of propaganda. If you can't see that that's where it's going, then why are you speaking at all? It's like it's amazing. It's it's been horrific to watch the demonization and this whole. You would think there's this creeping hand of brown men coming to rape women and and they're they're pedophiles and they're rapists and they're murderers and then people who will repeat these stories will turn around and say, well, I didn't say all of them. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Can we talk about what happened in Manchester after the last uh, 
you know, uh, you know, uh, a soccer tournament, or I think I remember you said. Well, I think what you're describing is New York on a Saturday night. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, yep. This is, it's not news. This is dog bites man, unless you have a separate agenda. And of course, I believe that they do. No doubt. You know, I, you and I go back and forth talking about, you know, various movies that we love, you know, comedies and so forth. And I'm watching this narrative about the refugees and all of this stuff. And I can't help but think about, you know, that, that beautiful scene in the classic film Blazing Saddles when uh, Gene, uh, Gene Wilder is there with Cleavon Little and they're wearing Ku Klux Klan uniforms. And he pulls, <laughs> wait, off, wait and he, and he pulls off the mask off of Cleavon Little and he says, hey, where are the white women at? <laughs> you know, and it's always I, funny because it's always there under the mask. And, and when the mask slips or gets pulled off, you can see it. And this is this is where we get, you know, I'm I'm making that I'm I'm making that analogy partially for humor, uh whatever, but also there's a very real and very sinister, I think, question that we need to address here, and that is the question of and I'm vigorously air quoting here anti-imperialism because what I find is a lot of people have cloaked themselves under the banner of anti-imperialism quote unquote while then turning around and making Europe into a victim pull, putting forward these debunked and totally discredited uh, and I would say historically fascist conspiracy theories about you know a cabal of Rothschilds and Jews or Freemasons and lizard people and God knows the what else they're England, saying, yes. the Queen of England and all of the rest of the Illuminati, you know, mm -hmm. they are they are conspiring to destroy Christendom. They are conspiring to destroy white Europe. They are conspiring to take away our way of life. Hashtag white genocide. You know what I mean? This sort mm -hmm. of nonsense, this is now being peddled by those people who have actually paraded as anti-imperialists. This is really dangerous, I think, and this is something that I think has to be be exposed and I'm perfectly happy saying it publicly. All of these people who are peddling this bullshit under the banner of anti-imperialism are no anti-imperialists at all. They are frauds. Yeah, no, I can, I agree with you. I I would, you know, I would say because I like to, you know what uh what um uh, uh George Wallace said to Jesse Jackson when the former was on his deathbed <laughs> as a, a kind of enticement to uh help populism along. He said, Jesse, keep the grass low where the goats can get at it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that it's important because there are people, I, I, I hesitate to say well-meaning because I don't really care. If you're talking about my family, and like I said to you during the break, if you talk to me about my family and you sound more like the cop who beat up my son than you do someone who gives a shit about my life, then I don't really care about you at all. Yeah. But, that said, I think that people are being drawn into a narrative that they yes. don't really realize that they're espousing. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not being uh, going overboard to be fair to them. I'm not trying to uh, soft pedal it. I'm just trying to say I want those people to understand what they're doing. And they wouldn't say they won't mention the lizard people. They won't mention uh, the, the Jews trying to destroy the white race. When you ask further questions of them, then they either don't kind of know or they will come up with things 
that are red flags because they haven't lived in this struggle in this environment maybe for very long. Either that or it's just a different environment. I've, I've said this to you in, in other articles and interviews before. There is a very different kind of approach to this thing from this side of the Atlantic versus what's happening in Europe right now. And we're talking right now about activists, people who uh, uh, say they're anti-imperialists, who have been active on and on the right side. I have to say on some issues like Syria, Yemen, uh, other things like that, and so on, even Ukraine, etc. Um but over here, and I'm the first to say what a hellhole the United States is founded on slavery and genocide and, and how horrific the political system is. But living with the vestiges of slavery, living as a they're, they're, uh, the incomers uh, destroyed all the inhabitants through genocide. So you can't say there is any indigenous stock to speak of. This is all Europeans and other immigrants from various parts of the world. Everyone's an immigrant. So you can't get away with this. And when you try, you sound and look exactly like a racist and a fascist. And you're called out for that. People who use the terms reverse racism, white genocide, like you said, um, I'm just asking questions. Those people are immediately tagged. And maybe some of their friends will take them aside and say, dude, you know, you, you really can't. You don't talk. You can't say that. You, you can't do that. That's well, just racist. And the backlash and, the backlash against that now, though, is they'll say, oh, you're, this is PC. This is political correctness gone wild. Why are you always <laughs> trying to tell people what they can and can't say? Come on, Dan, you totalitarian. White, <laughs> white studies. <laughs> Wait, is, is it white history? Is it White History Month yet? Yeah. No, the, that, that is exactly on point. If you come up and um, use the kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric, that is specifically essentializing, sensationalizing, exaggerating instances of migrant crime. And you have to put that in air quotes, too, because why are you even talking about a phenomenon of migrant crime? Crime is crime. You know who commits crimes? Criminals. <laughs> and, and you know who criminals are? Humans. Yeah. So you don't even need a subcategory of migrant crime. But if you take that, make it a subcategory, and then essentialize, exaggerate, and sensationalize it, you're going the wrong way. If you are in the camp who pretends to be anti-imperialist, that is a racist road to go down. Instead, those of us who are on that side and purport to be on that side and say that we shouldn't be blaming immigrants and we shouldn't be Islamophobes, we shouldn't be blaming a whole uh, uh, race for blah, etc., then our job should be to, um, to circulate and popularize the alternative narrative. This is that map that's been uh, circulating about um, all the fake stories that have that have surfaced in Germany yep, yep. and the map of where they are. That should be the thing that is in our social media networks. Let Bild Zeitung and Fox Network, Fox News, and, and unfortunately RT lately, let them all promote this narrative of how evil brown men are coming here. Our job as anti-imperialists, as anti-racists, as, as uh, anti-fascists should be to oppose that narrative, yep. not to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, <laughs> and that's what's happening. Well, People don't realize if you're in the middle of an argument and you say, and we, if, if you've been active in anti-racist uh, organizing, for example, here in the United States, people laugh at this. If you say, okay, I'm not racist, but yeah, just stop. 
Okay, just because nothing good ever followed. Nothing good <laughs> has yeah. ever come from that. You know, I'm not racist, but I'm just that we know that. Look, I'm that not racist, but from racist I, thing, though, I'm not know? racist, but why is it always about race? <laughs> <laughs> but what you get and, and what what is sad is that people and I've gotten really, really offended with people. I don't I don't then go after them because that's not my style, but it feels and I, I'm, I'm using hyperbole only slightly for exaggeration purposes and for for um uh, to make a point, but it's it's almost like being in an argument with someone says, "What? All I said is that black people are lazy and they smell. <laughs> why? Why am I a racist? Does that make me racist?" And it sounds like uh, Brian Griffin. Yes, Lois. <laughs> yes, that does make you a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. But Look, it's, here, it's here. so it's really frustrating because I never considered it part of my political work to have to embrace this narrative these are people this is the lady that i ran into in front of the post office who if you're and you know this because if you're white in the united states people assume that they can come up and shower you with racist jokes (laughs) this woman's i'm sitting my my african wife is sitting in a car with our mexican jamaican godson not 20 feet away and this woman comes up and says oh i hate going to the post office now all the spanish people it takes so much extra time yeah. This is what that's what happens. And then and, and I'll say, um, I don't want to get in a big fight. So I make a joke. Well, you know, I don't speak Wampanoag. So I feel yeah, I feel like maybe I shouldn't have the right to complain. I felt I'll deflect it with humor and a racist, a pure dyed in the wool racist then goes on to talk about firewater and casinos. It's like, oh, boy, I got to get I have to go away from you now. Yes. You're not my comrade. You're not my ally. You're not involved in anything except I need to fight you in the streets and avoid you on radio. That is my job vis-a-vis you and your ilk. And now I'm running into this from people who pretend to be political comrades. Yep. And my blood pressure is, is boiling. Well, it's, it's- and this is the this is this is uh, as you and I were discussing. This is part of the part of this that's really difficult to swallow is that when you when you take a position in which alliances of convenience end up being made with people who are on the right side of one particular issue then it the the uh you know the 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 politics spreads beyond that issue and they become exposed for what for the either their complete ignorance of other political issues or worse still exposed as reactionary racist pigs all of a sudden Again, again, we come back to popular culture. There's a Seinfeld Feld moment for any for everything. Remember the dentists, you anti-dentite bastard. Yeah, you anti-dentite. Who needs them, right? Yeah. Not to mention the blacks and the Jews. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that frozen moment where Jerry looks at the screen like, <gasps> "Yeah, what and- did I get myself into here?" Yeah, exactly and, and that's right. Exactly how I've been feeling lately. Well, and it's like you know, in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, um, you know, which is traditionally uh, Italian American and Irish American, which in the last you know twenty years uh, you've had a major influx of uh, Middle Eastern, you know, uh, people of uh, Arabic uh, background, and 
I will get people who have been in this neighborhood for a long time who might come up to me at the laundromat or, you know, whatever in the supermarket and they'll say, can you believe what's happened to this neighborhood? This used to be a nice neighborhood. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? And I say, well, actually, no, actually, no, I don't. I I don't know what you're talking about. And neither does my black girlfriend and neither does my Egyptian neighbor and neither do, uh, you know, all of the dark skinned people in New York City, which make up the majority of this city. So why don't you go ahead and explain exactly what? you mean yeah and it cuts them off at the knees but again this is like the lady i met in in front of the post office that is a racist phenomenon of living in a changing and still really really deeply racist society it's not in the circles where you expect to be fighting on the same side and that's where i come at it from from the political point of view of being involved with my uh friends and comrades over here, when things just go without saying, especially in the in terms of immigrant rights, in terms of anti-racism, in terms of anti-fascism, um, that you would never even take the time of day even to engage yep. is now something that is part of a narrative that is in the alternative and even so-called leftist alternative media. It's it's repulsive and. Here's my other beef with it and why I feel so kind of heated and uh, righteous about it is that I believe in like Einsteinian physics. We are not at the end of uh, edge of the universe uh, bending light. Basically, gravity works here the same way it does on Jupiter. There's just just a bigger planet. It works the same way in Europe. Light is light. You know, day is day, night is night. This, There's no reason for me to reject 500 years of history and all of the philosophy and all of the racist tropes that have gone on with this phenomenon of essentializing uh, immigrants as bad or, or cutting, you know, uh, uh, this false dichotomy of good immigrants and bad immigrants. There is no reason for me to feel that anything is different this time any more than you could tell me that, yeah, but you're, you're not from here, Dan. You don't know that in Italy, gravity goes up. <laughs> no, it doesn't. What the hell are you talking about? You've never been to Syria. I've never been to the moon, let me tell you. But if some idiot came back and he tried to tell me he was made out of blue cheese, I'd say he was an idiot. Because it doesn't make any sense. But and Dan, like but Dan, don't you understand that they're destabilizing Europe? It's a destabilization. <laughs> the, I mean, it's just well, they're okay. just without stability. It is okay. the stability that we have to protect. <laughs> this is, of course, if you accepted the world as uh, as not interconnected. In other words, that the what you refer to as stability in your lily white fortress Europe that you've been enjoying for a couple hundred years is directly connected to the death and instability and and uh, horrific destruction and expropriation that you have like launched on the rest of the colonized world. <laughs> then yeah, how it, dare well, you talk about stability? Well, here's here's the other here's the other thing, and I mean, all joking aside, WikiLeaks just uh, you know not 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 that many days ago released a very important intel from uh, military operations that the European Union was going to conduct in. Uh, in regards to the refugee crisis. And the reason I bring that up is because 
the actual leak included the specific numbers of, of uh, refugees from the western route that is going up through Spain, the central route coming across the Mediterranean via Libya uh, to Italy and into Central Europe that way, and then, of course, the eastern route. Now, there's a couple of conclusions we can reach from that, including the uh, 1,665% increase in refugees coming via Turkey, which tells us how Turkey has been cynically manipulating all of this, the role that they're playing in all of this. Mm -hmm. But the other point I want to make, and this is what's, I think, germane to this conversation, I did the numbers. I crunched the numbers, okay? These are all of the refugees for 2015. Uh, actually, actually, up to twenty, up to the end of twenty fifteen, I should say, I add them all together. They account for one one hundredth of one percent of the population of Europe. Now, of the of that's all the refugees. Now, I think everyone, including the most died in the wool racist, would agree that only a small fraction of those refugees are actually committing any kind of crimes, and even a smaller fraction committing serious sexual crimes and things like that. So we're talking one ten thousandth of one percent, or even less than that. Yeah. If that destabilizes the entire continent of Europe, doesn't that tell us more about Europe than it does about refugees? It tells you a lot about perception and who's managing the perception. Yep. It tells you it's a, that same game is played in every, it's, you know, forget the refugees for a minute and just think about uh, the constant uh, whining of right-wingers in the United States about how much is spent yep. on food stamps. And then you look at the budget and you see that so many billions more is spent on corporate welfare that it's a joke. And it's a manipulated and cynical and cruel joke. And when you have to focus on that without looking at that bigger picture, that's what I'm saying. I'm demanding of these people who say that they are our comrades in this kind of fight. I'm demanding that they look elsewhere, that they help us get the word out about the big picture. They are the ones that should be looking at these statistics and promoting these statistics and talking about it in terms of what a tiny fraction it represents. Then we can get into what I think um, rehumanizing, not to, to counter, which I think is our job too, is rehumanizing. Yeah. My family is all, my wife's family uh, immigrated about a century after my own family, right, with different waves of immigration. But my whole family is constantly spending every day worrying about all these issues of immigration and rights. And so when people are talking about this, it's intensely personal because they're talking about me and my children and my family. And so I think I have to counter that when people say, you know what, Eric, did you hear this? A lot of these people coming – are men. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they're able-bodied men. Can you believe it? They're rapists and terrorists, obviously. What other conclusion are you supposed to draw from this? I'm thinking, you know, I was spending time on Ancestry.com the other day, and um, as far as I remember, all of my great uncles, all of them came over alone. Yep. That's true of Julia's, my, my wife's family and every wave of immigration that's what you do the men come in and they get a job they send as much money as they can back home and when things are stable you send for the wife and kids and this like this is a completely that's what i what i resent about these people's either they're not informed 
or they're being deliberately obtuse because this is a very personal history and a very intimate uh, grasp of what we know from being connected to immigrant communities. What do they do? You come in and you want a lot of attention? You go around stealing and beating up women? No, you get the best job you can find, the shittiest job that no one else will do, and you work your ass off. You keep your head down. You try to stay away from cops. You try to stay away from customs officials. You try to stay away from loud neighbors. You try to stay away from drinking too much if you can because you don't want to be caught in a bar fight and da-da-da-da-da. That is the essential human part of immigration in the West. And, and, I, find, you, and I, find it so, I find it so infuriating um, how all of a sudden the, the narrative is about, well, don't you understand that a lot of these people who are coming into Europe, they're, they're just terrorists fleeing Syria. They've been involved in, in fighting this terrorist war in Syria. And now that they're losing because of, uh, you know, Russia's involvement in the, uh, uh, the, the, the government in Damascus and the Syrian Arab army, now that they're losing, these terrorists are coming to Europe. And I, and I have to say, well, number one, that's a gross distortion. I think that a lot of the people in including people who were fighting in Syria were people who got caught up in what they thought was a revolution. It got, it, they, they realized what they were actually involved in. They said, holy shit, I'm out of here. And then they left, no, really. you know, and that's then, a really, that's an important point to make because even the people who were on what you might say the wrong side, if you were an anti-imperialist, that's not really fair. I don't live there. Yeah. I don't know what they're, and I don't, they I don't, families. I, who are you going to, I mean, okay, I can't whatever, whatever. That. And Whatever people want to say about their position on the Syria issue, I can debate it all day long. You and I have been very vocal on that. We obviously, we agree. Not everyone who follows uh, this program on Counterpunch necessarily agrees, but that aside... I also understand the reality of human beings, and I also understand that there are people who make political choices in their life based on what they think is the is the right thing to do, based on their own experiences, their family. Some of them have a, a, a beef with the Assad government going back a generation or two. Some of them have a beef with you know uh, various uh, um, you know ethnic minorities or whatever. Whatever the case may be, the reality yes. the reality is. You don't get to dehumanize somebody because they picked the wrong side in a war. Ultimately, what they all have a beef with is not having enough food. That's a real beef. Yeah. There's the beef. Well, they and, have a beef with survival. And, and you can't it, – it's for – I think it is essentially evil to say that um, – People – we get to choose. Now, there are some people who have said this. The Syrians – now, okay, of, of some of the um, some of the activist community that we're talking about, the only ones who are legitimate are those people who are fleeing the NATO war on Syria. Why? And Because the NATO war on Afghanistan happened 20 years earlier? So they're not legit anymore? And, the and, ones from Libya? And, the economic migrants are somehow less – Legit than 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 uh, uh, war refugees. Well, and you I also have to love... come with the shrapnel from the bomb that landed on your dad's house with a corresponding serial number to prove that you are worthy of coming back and taking something from the empire that destroyed your your homeland. Well, that's, and also on top disgusting. of that, I mean, Dan, let's be let's be honest. Uh, who is better placed to determine legitimacy of a refugee than a white leftist? <laughs> I think it is, it is really, it's, it's, I think, and I hate, you know, because it, like I said, I, um, I always feel a little bit, uh, 
not nervous, but just I realized that um, being white, male, American, that this is, you know, the destroyer. I am become death. Like this is an exponent of one of the worst governments in the history of humanity. But what has happened, what I've seen in my travels now, is that um, there are many Europeans who look down on on Americans and think themselves superior just because they have a few more crumbs from the imperialist table. You people don't even have free college. What do you know about progressivism? <laughs> Therefore, uh, when I say uh, black people smell, I get to say that because, you know, you're, you had you're, your great grandfathers had slaves. What, whatever. I don't even know what the sense of thinking is, but I do feel a sense of rejection that this narrative, that the European white narrative is superior. And I find it um, really insulting. And, uh, and on top of that, and on top of that, I think the other question that has to be asked is, OK, you let's assume all of the let's take all of the other assumptions as true. They're not. But let's take them as as if they were true, that a lot of the people who are coming over are actually terrorists from Syria and whatever. And they're yeah, coming because them? they're being and they're coming because they're being, you know, killed on the battlefield, etc. Here's the question that I would ask. Where are they supposed to go? Mm-hmm. Who gave them the money and the weapons? Who waged that war? Who's been backing that war? Who's been fomenting that war? And where do you expect them to go? And, and who's arranging which of – how do you distinguish between those who just have nowhere to go and those who may be being infiltrated back in because they're in cahoots with Western intelligence agencies? Exactly. You can, there's no way to – and so again, so because of all of these yep. uh, problematics, and I don't think any of us is saying that there aren't any, but because of the way they filter out, you are left back with the original narrative, which is the age-old phenomenon. There is one narrative here about immigration, migration, who's responsible for creating these waves of, of, of refugees, and who has a responsibility to accommodate them. And that is uh, – and who has the plunder <laughs> that came from the countries that they are leaving? How dare you? And if you if you can't see that and organize your thought process around it, then I think you're just being intellectually lazy and you're not working hard enough. But Dan, find the but, argument. But Dan, explain to me why can't they just go to Saudi Arabia? Because surely, <laughs> surely, uh, somebody who comes from a secular country that has a history of religious tolerance and rights for women, surely they wouldn't object to being uh, forcibly moved to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Right? I mean, I don't get it. Obviously, there's a plot to destroy Europe. Obviously, the lizard people are in cahoots with the Illuminati to destroy Europe, and they're using the Muslim refugees in order to do it. Why don't you see that? I did see. I did see a reference to Zionist, the, the Zionist plan to destroy the white race, yeah. literally in print. I yes. did see it among these, and it just feels like just a warmed-over version of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Yep. And if you scratch deeply enough, you always find this. That's my. That's my beat. Is that I am being told that I'm being mean or not hearing people out or calling someone a racist just because I see it faster. Listen, you know what? Uh, listen, honey, I haven't got time to go through all this, but if you want to talk to him for an additional five minutes, you're going to see the lizard people. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's always on page seven. 
I just am not going to read that chapter. I don't have to because there's no reason to. It always works out the same way. And well, so, and, it, and and on top of and on top of everything else, I mean, even if you don't accept the lizard people and you don't accept the Illuminati, then you surely can't deny the Anunnaki, right? <laughs> You know, because I, this is this is this is literally what it's coming to is that the yeah. refugee the refugee crisis is an orchestrated conspiracy to destroy Europe, and we uh, you know if only we could just stand up and finally after all these years just defend white Christianity. If only well, we could just see, do that. If you, okay, now okay, now you took a leap there, which I think I agree with. But I think people sometimes need that logical step because they don't see that they're sliding down this racist, slippery slope and say, like, I didn't say white Christian Europe. What are you saying then? More people who look like my children and more people who look like my family are going to destroy your way of life. How do you expect that to sound to me? And how do you justify saying that? baldly to my face well you're taught what you're saying is deeply and inherently racist and you're you well no i didn't say i didn't mention christians that's what we're talking about and if you can't see that you're being deliberately blind or you are making these people's argument for them either that or you just have a hood in your closet and you only bring it out when the grand wizard is in town i don't but I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna. Well, to be fair, them. to be fair, I, I'm. I, I do think that when the Grand Wizard comes, that's when you do bring it out. So let's just, <laughs> let's just be fair about it. You know? Don't bring out a hood, not a hoodie. That, whoa, <laughs> yeah. whoa, 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 whoa! Now you're now you're mixing now you're mixing your metaphors here. Um, I <laughs> but, but well, but interestingly, interestingly though, a lot of the people who are promoting this sort of thinking, um, not that long ago, they were sharing Black Lives Matter. Things. They were sharing Ferguson and Baltimore and uh, a lot of these other issues. And it, and it brings me back to this question. Are they being disingenuous? Are they, are they simply ignorant? Do they not understand what they're doing? Or are some of them falling into a really cynical form of manipulation of narratives? And unfortunately, I think it's a combination of all three. Yeah, no, I agree. But what I think is that it's not... I'm I'm not trying to be smarter than anyone. I'm not telling anyone what to think. I'm asking that people do exactly what I demand of myself. Get off your ass. Do some research. Read some history. Do some analyzing. And look around. Get out of your own comfort zone and say, wait a minute. How does this seem to the people who aren't me? How can I make this argument? They're making, huh. I guess maybe that did sound like that. And people who have, you know, they say the, um, the the best cure for a recalcitrant old white racist is to give him a brown granddaughter. <laughs> Bam! Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, because you say like, wait a minute, I've been looking at this all wrong. And I think that if people don't want to live a, a, a critically thinking life, then there's, there's nothing you can do with that. But there is clearly something happening here that um, straddles that, like, or strains that credulity. It's like, wait a minute, you're, what you're saying, look at what you were saying six months ago about Ferguson, and then look at this. Yep. Why can't you see that you're trying to tell me that gravity falls up? 
You know, you're, you're, this is the same. You are not being you're not being organized in your thinking. You're either over personalizing something that happened to you. The, the opposite of some of my best friends are black or you are trying to carve out some sort of medical physical space in which the rules don't apply. And my only point and why I don't want to personalize, I don't want to talk about people by name and, you know, there's too many. That's that's like the schoolyard politics of uh, Facebook and everything else. I say this narrative is uh, intact. It makes sense. I have a personal stake in it, but that only fuels my commitment to it intellectually. That what you're saying when I come up against these arguments, I say, huh, that doesn't make sense to me. I will go back. Look at this. Come up with you know three or four thousand historical examples because I'm a little wonky like that, and then I I think no that's just crazy. Yeah. You can't you can't say that. It, that there's that's not a thing. <laughs> the other the other thing, and we're just about out of time, but I just want to finish on this point. Um, the Kukue, the Greek Communist Party, has a, a an interesting um, historical position here. I was in, in, in a sense, not opposed to them, but I thought that they were being deliberately obstinate and overly sectarian when Syriza came to power and they refused to uh, really um, ed- enter into the coalition under Syriza. And everything they said about Syriza, all of their criticisms, all of their critiques turned, out to, turned out to be 100% accurate. They right. they were on to on the money the whole way. And now I'm, I have to say, you know, I do have some friends who are involved with them and who I have, you know, very much mea culpa to. And I told them that they were right and I was wrong and I'm happy to admit it and I'm happy to call them friends. And now I look at what the Kukue's position is, or that's the KKE, the Kukue's position on uh, the refugee issue. And in the midst of by far the worst economic collapse anywhere in Europe, a society that has already been utterly destabilized, that is almost literally on its knees, uh, prostrate before the European Union, and the Communist Party is welcoming refugees and organizing them and providing them with assistance and providing them with the means to support themselves and providing them with political education and ideological education education and all of that. Why is this so hard for so many others on the so-called left in Europe and especially those who call themselves anti-imperialist? Why is it so hard for them to understand that the refugees who are coming here, these are supposed to be those who we defend and those who we look to to stand with rather than to be opposed to? Why is that so hard to get? I I just you know, I could talk to my wife and my family about it. And they just think uh, I, they'll say things like, I, "Honey, they're just too white. They just don't get it." But I, I want to go back to just one last thing. What you said about the mea culpa part of it is that they can, they still have time. I was wrong about Libya for the first few weeks, and I said, "Whoa, whoa, wait a minute!" It, you know, a lot of us got caught up in the Arab Sting and thought that this was, you know, this was the greatest thing since popcorn. Um, it's okay to then kind of reset your gears. That's, and I think I will always hold that open. I don't, you know, write people off for the rest of humanity. I just go on my own way. It, there's always room for people to admit that they, uh, this was a misstep and they have to come back 
to the ideological home, which is this is the narrative that makes sense about immigration and about um, the people coming from the global south, and this is the one that we have to support. Exactly right, Dan. You got to come back. Uh, we could we could do hours and hours. Um, <laughs> I, I I I I'm happy to call you my friend. I'm happy to call you my comrade. And uh, Daniel Patrick Welsh, political analyst, independent school founder, Greenhouse School in Massachusetts. Uh, thanks for coming on. You're going to come back hopefully soon. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, thanks, Eric. Good to have you.